0: Frank, that includes you. Oh, you're so kind, John. Welcome back to the John and Frank, Frank and John podcast. Looking forward to recording another podcast with you today. Hope you're well. Hope you uh, have a true disposition on because today we got a topic I want to talk about that isn't necessarily kind of a super exciting topic, but seems to be a, a, a topic where folks are perpetually struggling. Do you want to know what the topic is, Frank?
1: What is that topic, John?
0: Let me answer that for you, Frank. The topic that we're going to talk about today is OSHA recordability versus OSHA reportability and kind of the employer's general obligation to engage in record keeping.
1: Fantastic. This is my least favorite subject. I'm looking forward to this.
0: I want to give the audience just a little bit of background before you and I actually start kind of hashing this out. Uh, Under the act, OSHA has an obligation to basically secure data. And as part of the effort to secure data, and as part of the, the effort to fulfill that obligation under the act, OSHA has developed standards that relate to employers maintaining records relative to injury and illness data. And those regulations require that. Employers use various forms, the OSHA Form 300, the OSHA Form 301, or its equivalent, the OSHA Form 300A Summary, and, and then you also have some other you know, sort of ancillary um, type record-keeping items. One of the biggest issues that we've run into lately, or that I run into lately, and, and it you know perplexes me, is kind of the, the difficulty that folks have in kind of figuring out what they're supposed to do with a particular injury or illness or or situation at work. And so I thought today, Frank, you and I might be able to help our audience a little bit and and provide a little bit of clarity, a little bit of explanation that would maybe help them make this process a little bit easier. Is that fair for us to do?
1: I think that's fair. Uh, And uh, in case I forget, I'd just let everybody know that uh, OSHA has over a thousand letters of interpretation uh, regarding specific uh, scenarios that are all accessible on OSHA's website, uh, if, if you just uh, if you enter um, OSHA record keeping interpretations, you can you can pull that up, and then uh, it gives you a, a field to do a was that a Borlian word search for the different scenarios. But I, I think it's fair to talk about a few of the most common ones here on our podcast today, John. I like that idea.
0: Well, and thank you for mentioning that, Frank. You're right. That That's one way to do it. The other way to do it, and my recommendation, because OSHA also maintains an FAQ library, is to do the search on OSHA record-keeping FAQs.
1: Yeah, and maybe that's what I was referring to is the FAQs. Uh, either either parameter will bring up what we're talking about, uh, but the FAQs also reference those interpretation, interpretation letters.
0: You know, unfortunately, sometimes they contradict each other. Let's start off with the general concept, Frank. Right? So before we have to worry about putting something in our records, we have to know whether or not something is recordable, meaning is it something we're supposed to record? Can you tell our audience what the basic criteria for recordability is?
1: Yeah, there's three items under the OSH Act that uh, constitute a recordable event. Uh, These three items are read in the conjunctive, meaning that all three elements must be present in order to make it a recordable event. Uh, Number one, was there an injury or illness? And that's a conjunctive part And two, was the injury uh, or illness work-related? And three, the injury or illness meets the recording criteria. And each of those, of course, deserves a little more attention.
0: Frank, I I, I think on the first point, is there an injury or illness? That one maybe doesn't need a ton of explanation.
1: That's a broad definition, right? Uh, OSHA broadly defines it as any abnormal condition or disorder such as injuries like a cut, fracture, sprain, or amputation, or an illness like uh, skin disease, uh, respiratory disorder, poisoning, things like that.
0: The one that gets a little bit more complicated and the one that people really seem to struggle with is this concept of work-relatedness. And and there's both a bunch of things that, for lack of a better term, kind of throw the dragnet out and make things work-related, but there's also a bunch of kind of exclusions to the work-relatedness. Can you give our audience a little bit of an explanation of whether or not an injury or illness is work-related?
1: Now, OSHA casts a broad net as to what constitutes work-relatedness. It's uh, defined as an event or exposure in the work environment that either caused or contributed to a resulting condition or it's significantly aggravated a pre-existing injury they come from the position that it's a no fault system so if it if it seems like it's work related and it occurs in the meaning that it occurred in the workplace then the presumption starting out is that it is work related so if if somebody has a, a a muscle strain in the workplace regardless of Whether they're doing work that should have resulted in a muscle strain, in a layman's opinion, uh, then the presumption is that it's work related if it occurred in the work environment.
0: We could go for hours talking about all the kind of nuances associated with the work-relatedness determination, but we want to kind of keep this moving along. So let's talk about the last
1: Let me interrupt you. You know, this is where I always get questions, uh, you know, because usually you can tell it's an injury. The question is that comes up the most frequently in the analysis is whether it's work-related. And that's really where I tend to look at the interpretive guidance and the FAQs personally when I'm trying to make that evaluation. And I find that 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 is the single most effective use in my practice for the FAQs or interpretive guidance. I don't know about you.
0: Typically, it's on that fine point of work relatedness and, and, you know, kind of it's between that and whether or not something qualifies as medical treatment that I end up spending the most amount of time looking at the FAQs.
1: Yeah, that's fair.
0: Let me shift gears just a little bit and and let's finish off on that third point, because I think the the first two points, at least as far as we can go in a, you know, 20, 30 minute podcast, we've gone as far as we can go. Um, The last point being the injury or illness meets the recording criteria. Can you explain to our audience a little bit about what that means?
1: course, yeah. There's five. There, there's five specific areas that uh, that that OSHA describes as as uh, meeting the recordability criteria. Number one was the injury or illness. Did it require medical treatment? And as you alluded to a moment ago, medical treatment has has its own set of detailed definitions for what constitutes medical treatment. Uh, and you know, just as a rule of thumb, OSHA says that everything's medical treatment, uh, unless um, it's a visit to a physician or other licensed healthcare professional that's solely for observation or counseling, or if it's just the conduct of diagnostic procedures, such as um, x-rays or blood tests uh, that are only for diagnostic purposes and don't involve treatment or first aid. And first aid even has its own set of definitions uh, that, that create those layer challenges, and that's why you point out that, that that's a nice place to go to the FAQs and the interpretation letters as to whether it constitutes medical treatment. So uh, whether the injury or illness required medical treatment, that's the first question on the on whether it's recordable. The second is whether the injury caused days away from work or restricted duty or a job transfer. Or number three, whether the injury caused death. Obviously a fatality is recordable a work-related fatality is recordable. And uh, number four, uh, whether it resulted in a loss of consciousness. Uh, And number five, whether a physician diagnosed it as a significant significant injury illness. Examples of those involve cancer, chronic uh, irreversible diseases like silicosis, fractured or, uh, or broken bones, and um, and a punctured eardrum. Uh, those are some of the common examples that you see on the OSH Act. Uh, unlike the, uh, the three criteria we mentioned at the beginning that are read in the conjunctive, these are all read in the disjunctive. So it's uh, required medical treatment or resulted in days away from work, restricted duty or job transfer or death, resulted in death or loss of consciousness, or a physician called it significant. If it's any one of those five things, then it meets the recordability criteria and, and is expected to be recorded on, uh, on all the OSHA injury logs, 300, 301, 300 A.
0: And just to, to clarify something, and I should have mentioned this earlier, the 301 doesn't need to be filled out so long as there's an equivalent form. In a lot of states, the employer's workers' compensation, first report of injury, satisfies all the requirements of the 301 and so um, to the extent that there's duplicate coverage there's, there's no need to, to kind of duplicate that effort now frank one of the things that you, know, you mentioned with regard to the five points uh, in your prior answer was you know, the issue of whether or not it was medical treatment versus first aid and and that's something that you know we mentioned in, in a prior question or at least prior commentary from me uh, can you give our audience a little bit of guidance in terms of how to make the determination of whether it's medical treatment versus first aid and, and in the latter case, not being something that has to be recorded versus the, the medical treatment that does need to be recorded?
1: Yeah. So first aid, OSHA defines bullet points, several items, and I'll just go <laughs> through the bullet points, right? Non-prescription medication, given at non-prescription strength, and that's key because if you take four Tylenol... Each Tylenol is 200 milligrams. So if you take four of them, that becomes an 800 milligram dose, and that's prescription strength. So you have a question about whether taking that much Tylenol at the direction of a physician remains a non-prescription strength. Uh, I I think you'd want to evaluate that. uh, Maybe ask the doctor. Uh, Tetanus immunizations, uh, that's considered first aid. Uh, cleaning or flushing of a wound on the surface of the skin, that's considered first aid. Um, applying bandages, band-aids, gauze pads, etc., or using a butterfly bandage or, or sterile strips to close a wound, considered first aid. Hot and cold therapy, that's considered first aid. Any non-rigid means of support, such as an elastic bandage wrap or a non-rigid back belt, those types of things, as opposed to, instance, a, a cast, those non-rigid means of support, they're considered first aid, not medical treatment. Temporary immobilization devices while transporting an accident victim, like a splint or a sling or a neck collar, backboard, those things, OSHA defines those as first aid. If you've got uh, drilling, uh, if you've got fluid under a fingernail or having to drain fluid from a blister, that type of thing, even drilling through a fingernail or a toenail to relieve pressure, that's considered first aid. Uh, Distinguishable from having to remove water, as they call it, from a knee, but it's not really water, right? It's always blood. Removing fluid from a knee, that would be considered medical treatment. Eye patches, that's considered first aid removing a splinter or foreign material from an area other than an eye, using irrigation tweezers, cotton swabs, or other simple means, that's considered first aid. Finger guards, massages, drinking fluids for relief of heat stress, all those things also are considered medical treat, uh, first aid, not medical treatment.
0: As we've alluded to a couple of times thus far, I mean, certainly there's a lot of nuances here and there's a reason there's hundreds and hundreds of frequently asked questions slash standard interpretations, you know, the, the, the standard was generated and, and the guidance issued and it doesn't necessarily keep up with kind of state of the art relative to, to the medical field. And so uh, there's a lot of, of, you know, kind of interpretive guidance out there. And, and quite frankly, you know, in, in a lot of these cases, it's not so clear cut. It's not just, oh, they have a blister under their finger. They drilled the fingernail to relieve the pressure. You know, there's some other sort of, you know, hitch to it. And so, you know, we often recommend that clients go take a look at the FAQs and kind of dig through the FAQs to, to figure out those fine points.
1: It's so rare to get one that's, that's just a square black and white answer uh, by the time that, that I see the question. I, I think in the, the cases that are pretty plain, I, I, I feel like we never get those questions. I wish somebody had caught me with one of these simple ones.
0: You know, Frank, you're absolutely right. I mean, we don't typically get, you know, the simple questions, you know, I mean, let's face facts, who's going to call a lawyer to talk to them about something that they know the answer to? Typically, folks are getting on the phone and calling us when it's some, you know, bizarre kind of one-off situation and they need some guidance. You know, relative to the record keeping and the recordability piece, the next thing I'd like to talk about, and I'd like to talk about it in kind of the same level of high level of detail is the restricted work days away cases. And if you can give our audience just kind of a high level explanation, high level definition of what are the requirements for those types of cases? What case meets a days away restricted duty case? And then maybe just a real simple discussion about how you count those days away. I think that would be helpful.
1: Sure, restricted work and days away cases. This I don't find to be such a hard analysis, right? If a physician or other licensed healthcare provider recommends restricted work, that makes the case recordable, assuming it meets the other criteria. The standard says that work is restricted, quote unquote restricted, only if the employee cannot perform his or her routine job functions. The standard even goes a step further and defines what a routine job function is. And it's a job task that an employee performs at least one time per week. So for instance, Uh, a physician recommends that an employee not lift more than 10 pounds following a workplace injury. Assuming the employee has a job that requires them to lift more than 10 pounds at least one time per week, then the employee is restricted and that makes the case recordable. Now, uh, another example, an employee recommends an employee not type on a computer keyboard for more than two hours a day, but three times a week, the employee uses a computer for an hour. So three times a week, three different days, one hour a day. Uh, in that case, the, it's not recordable as restricted work case because the employee's not exceeding the, the two hours per day of using a computer keyboard. So those are actual examples that are in the standard um, and make it pretty simple for, for all of us folks to be able to figure out what constitutes restricted and what doesn't constitute restricted work. If it does turn out to be restricted work, going to your your question about counting days, the day of the injury doesn't count. It's the next day that counts. So, the day of the injury is it counts as zero. Uh, The next day, for instance, if if they're on restricted work for seven days. Uh, and the, the first day doesn't count, the next day starts the count. And and so you count the number of restricted days starting on, on the day after the injury.
0: And the thing that I normally see, and I don't know what your experience is, but I assume it's kind of the same, Frank, is that it's not so much the kind of black and white case where employee is injured, doctor says take five days off of work, the employee comes back after five days. Instead, it's the situation where employee is told by physician, take two weeks off. The employee returns on the seventh business day after the injury and goes back to work. And the employers are trying to figure out at that point, well, do I record 10? Do I record seven? How do I record this?
1: Yeah. So OSHA is playing on that too. You record whatever the physician says. So if, uh, if the physician says you're out 10 days and the employee comes back after seven saying, I'm feeling fine. And the employer lets him go to work. In the absence of a doctor's note correcting the the number of days they should be out, the employer is expected to record the 10 days that the physician wrote. On the flip side of that, if an employee says, oh, after 10 days, uh, I really can't come back to work. I need five more days. So the employee's out for 15 days. uh, The employer is still only required to record the 10 days that the physician said the employee had to be out, even though the employee, by their own volition, stayed out an additional five
0: and the maximum number of days is 180 correct
1: uh, yeah 180 or depending on when the injury occurs it, it you don't have to record onto the following year's log for instance if the injury if they have to be out for for 2 months but the injury occurs on december 1st you only have to record it on De- for that month of uh, of the the previous year so if it was 20 december 2022 uh, december 1 2022 you just record the injury on that log the twenty twenty two log. You don't have to carry it over to twenty twenty
0: three. Understood. So let's shift gears just a little bit and let's talk about reportability. And I think a lot of employers kind of had their first real taste, particularly if you're talking about, you know, kind of office retail type employers, a lot of them had their first taste of reportability situations as a result of the pandemic and folks that were being hospitalized or folks that had passed as a result of Um, at least alleged COVID-19 exposure or or alleged COVID-19 causes. Can you explain to our audience just kind of broadly speaking the difference between recordability and reportability?
1: First, let me say this. Some state plans, we're only talking about federal OSHA here because federal OSHA is what applies to um, the federal OSHA standards or what applies to Region 6, including New Mexico, even though New Mexico is a state plan. So we're focused here On federal OSHA, not state plans like California or Oregon or Washington that have a different reporting uh, requirement. But reporting Mm -hmm. is an additional obligation that employers have for certain types of cases. For every workplace injury that is recordable, the employer must record that injury. If an injury is recordable under the criteria we discussed so far in this podcast, then certain events certain types of injuries require an employer or certain types of injuries or certain types of outcomes following a workplace injury require an employer to actually call OSHA within a certain amount of time to report it. It's unfortunate that record and report uh, are so close because uh, I find those get confused all the time, but recording is the first analysis and then depending on the injury or outcome uh, of that injury, an employer may have an additional obligation to report it also.
0: Frank, uh, you know, I don't want to be called the corrector, but I want to just make a little correction to what you said, which is you may not necessarily have to call it in. There is an online link that you can use to electronically submit a report of a serious event. serious event reporting tool uh, so it can be done either way Um, another little tip this really was kind of beyond the scope of the answer that you provided if you're calling during normal business hours during the work week you can call your osha area office for where the work was performed or you can use the online tool if it's after hours or on the weekend you can use the online tool or there's a toll-free telephone number you use to call that in. You cannot, and I've had employers make this mistake where they've called and left a message at the area office on a weekend or late at night or whatever the case After might be. After hours, yeah. Yeah, you, you cannot do that. Now, there's there's pretty tight timelines.
1: And what's the consequence if, uh, if you don't report it correctly?
0: It's a citation typically classified as other than serious, although we've had a couple of issued as serious under the record-keeping standard. I've seen is willful. I've not yet seen that, and I hope I never do, but I could see it happening, especially with the instance-by-instance instance citation policy and some of mm-hmm. the things that came out this spring.
1: And that's but- a max penalty of uh, 156,000 currently. Uh, and I, I've, I've seen high penalties for willful violations of that, reporting rule.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So Frank, let, let's, let's talk about a couple of other things. Um, we're, we're getting to kind of the end of our time, and, and I think we can get these done relatively quickly. There are some pretty tight timelines relative to the act of reporting one of these events. Can you explain to our audience what those timelines are?
1: So under the, the federal OSHA standards, uh, an employer must report a workplace fatality. Again, uh, a fatality that satisfies the the record-keeping criteria. They must report that fatality within eight hours of learning of the fatality. There, there are some other complicating calculations in it, but basically the simple way to think about it and to begin evaluating your obligation to report is it's any management official, any supervisor that learns of it. So if you know you've got a workplace injury, you've got to monitor monitor for that. It's also the same for, for the other reporting criteria. The fatality is an eight-hour requirement. Within 24 hours of learning of a either a hospitalization or a loss of an eye or an amputation, the employer has an obligation to to make a report to OSHA for a work-related hospitalization, amputation, or loss of an eye. And again, it's the same standard. Uh, if a supervisor knows about an amputation, but the plant manager doesn't find it, you know, if the supervisor knows about an amputation on Saturday morning, but the plant manager doesn't, bless you, doesn't learn about it until Monday morning, uh, and doesn't report it until Monday morning, uh, it's a late report, and it's a citable offense, and OSHA does cite for those. It's not one, oh, well, shucks, you tried type things. I I see them cite for every single one of them, even if we would argue it's a, you know, a technical mistake.
0: And Frank, just for clarification purposes, the clock starts running when the employer knew or reasonably should have known of the death or, or the other reportable event not from when that death or other reportable event happens. So that as a, for instance, if you had an employee who is working, you know, the gaugers that come out and, and look at the, the tank battery on my property and, you know, if he sustains some sort of injury or illness that causes his death and it takes two days for somebody to go out and find them, that doesn't mean that they're late in reporting it because they reported it within an hour of learning of the death. It, it's, it's, it's when they've learned of the death that's the trigger point, not the, the the moment of death, correct?
1: Yeah, it's when they knew or should have known. You know, we had that issue a lot with COVID. Uh, the ones that got reported uh, where OSHA would would say, well, and actually we we still have it sometimes with amputations or or electrical exposures. Uh, burns where we can't get the information from the hospital about what the disposition of the individual is, whether they were admitted or whether they're just getting diagnosed in the ER. There's a delay sometimes, even when we're trying. And um, that that has appeared to be an acceptable excuse. But the point is, you have to have some evidence that you're making a good faith effort to learn uh, otherwise uh, OSHA is likely to ding you for that, well, you should have known you should have tried and uh, ding you with the citation.
0: Yeah, and and I mean, you know, to your point and without getting too far down the rabbit trail, you know, it's relatively easy in most cases to document the effort to try to figure out what's going on, you know, whether it's emails back and forth internally where the person who's doing the reach out to the the medical provider or, or law enforcement or whatever, is reporting back to a larger group or to other people, you know, kind of what the progress is having some records that are maintained contemporary or generated contemporaneous with the activities to me is an enormous help in dealing with those issues with OSHA.
1: Yeah, I I think you're right. Uh, You know, I know that everybody's got a lot of documentation going on in their world and and it's really uh, can be a challenge. My rule of thumb is sending an email to myself when I when I need to make sure I'm documenting something, or uh, sending sending an email to myself and and maybe one other to so uh, we're keeping track of those things. Then at least you've got some kind of contemporaneous record, as you mentioned.
0: Well, Frank, certainly the audience has questions that you and I can't even conceive. Unfortunately, we could probably spend three days on this podcast going through various <laughs> examples. For and... the
1: record, I, I couldn't, there's no way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I'm not saying that we have the stamina to do that, but I mean, <laughs> in, in terms of all the bizarre twists and turns and, and, and you know intrigue that, that folks ask us about, I mean, there, there's a lot here and there's a lot that can be unpacked and a lot that, that folks might have questions about. And, and, you know, from the standpoint of, of being able to answer those questions, a podcast, that's just not possible.
1: Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with that.
0: But, you know, again, Frank, as always, it's a pleasure having a conversation with you. It's a pleasure talking through this topic. Hopefully this podcast will be of help to our audience. And, um, I look forward to our next conversation on the, unofficially, maybe soon to be officially branded John and Frank podcast or Frank and John (laughs) podcast.
1: Uh, You're very kind. Uh, It's good talking to you again.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.